Radio Mano Papachango. Yes, it's me, that voice in your head that you hear every week or so. This week's episode is with Ted Slingerland, who wrote a book called Trying Not to Try, which is about the concept of Wu Wei, which is being in the flow, getting shit done without working, trying, just being there, letting it flow, Taoism, ancient Chinese philosophy, very interesting stuff. It's about a place we're all trying to be, all trying to get to, but it's one of those Chinese mind fucks, you know, where you're trying to get there and by trying you get further away. It's like that, um, what's that that thing you stick your fingers in and the more you pull, you, the tighter it gets on your fingers. The more you struggle, the more hopeless the situation becomes. So you have to find this way of relaxing your way out of the crisis. Uh, I guess that works. I guess I've relaxed my way out of crises throughout my life. It seems to make intuitive sense to me. When I found myself in a real bind, like, you know, the Alaskan prison, or when I left my money in that guest house in India, you may have heard, I think I told that story in one of the one of the Toma um, episodes. Anyway, when I've been in a really bad spot, my instinct has been to just sort of surrender to it and not try to get too clever and, you know, start telling lies or trying to manipulate people or play a game. Just sort of throw myself at the mercy of the kindness of strangers. And it's worked out most of the time for me. Um, I'm not sure that's exactly a corollary to what Ted's talking about in this episode, but I think there's some similarities you know, they say when you're lost, sort of the first the first thing you learn when you do any sort of um, wilderness training, if you get lost, what's the first thing you do? Nothing. Stop. Don't panic. Don't don't, you know, follow whims. Don't think yeah, it must be over that hill. I'm going to. No, no. Stop. Just stop. Calm down. Think. Slow everything down. You're not. The situation won't get worse by you just stopping and thinking for a few minutes. So I guess that's sort of relaxing. It's it's getting your shit together. It's, uh, you know, not cluttering up your thought process with uh, superfluous effort. Now, of course, this could just be the uh, complicated self-justifications of a lazy person. I fully, fully cop to that. I am a lazy person. But I think that more often than not, my laziness has kept me out of trouble rather than getting me into it. Now, I don't know. Again, that could just be a question of perspective. You know, this is the life that has resulted. So therefore, I feel like it's the best it could have been, which we all know is not a very accurate way of looking at things. But uh, it is the way we tend to look at things. Anyway, uh, thank you, all of you people who have been supporting the podcast. I just got, speaking of supporters, star supporters of the podcast, I just got uh, a couple boxes of shirts from um, Sure Design T-shirts in Thailand who have decided that they are going to continue to sponsor the podcast despite the fact that uh, Bennett, that was Bennett's, decision and uh they're under absolutely no obligation to 
obviously, to continue to support the podcast in his absence. Um, those of you who followed the podcast for a while have heard that episode with Bennett and um, know that he died shortly after we had that conversation. So he's no longer running the show there. But Chip and the other people who are have decided that they're going to keep sending us T-shirts at a steep discount, which uh, helps support the podcast. So we really appreciate that. Mom's got the shirts out in the garage and the garage is getting kind of cluttered. We've you know, we have all these different lines of shirts. Some of them are selling well. You seem to love the civilized to death shirts. The sex at dawn shirts have sold very well. Uh, Some of the others aren't selling so well. So I've decided in cooperation with mom that what we're going to do is to have a year end clearance sale. That's right. A tangentially speaking year end clearance sale. So the Toma shirts talking out my ass and the paleo modern shirts are five bucks. I just marked them down five bucks plus shipping, which I think is three bucks in the U S and I don't know to Australia. It's a lot more, but anyway, Shirts are five bucks. Uh, the Toma and the Paleo Modern shirts. The tangentially speaking shirts are ten bucks. I think the hoodies are like twelve in tangentially speaking, and in the other two they're like eight or something. So here's your chance to get your shirt design T-shirt very cheap if you want any of those designs. But even if you don't want any of those designs, go to shortdesignt-shirts.com and. Uh, Use the code, what is the code? Sex at Dawn, I believe, is the discount code. So you, they will let them know that you came from me and you get, um, I think it's 15% off, whatever you, your entire order, I believe. Uh, anyway, check them out. Short Design T-shirts, they're fantastic. And someone else who's been a big supporter of the podcast is the band Basin and Range. You can check them out. Uh, Google Basin and Range. I think they're at Bandcamp, Basin and Range Band, at Bandcamp. Uh, anyway, get, uh, Google them. You'll find them all over the place. I play the, a little snippet of their tune, Bright Side of the Sun, uh, in the intro to this podcast week after week after week. Uh, this week, I'm going to play the whole damn song because, as you'll hear, it gets very funky. I think I did this in one or two other episodes, but every once in a while when I think of it, I'm going to play the whole song. And this is one of those episodes. So here's the song, Bright Side of the Sun by Basin and Range.
goodness. That's a trip, isn't it? I really like that song. I blast that in the car sometimes when I'm cruising down the highway, Topanga Canyon Boulevard. Uh, hey, thank you to everybody who's um, signed up on Patreon recently. I saw there's been a bit of a surge. A bunch of people have signed up uh, in the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm not going to read your your whole name because some of you probably don't want that. I, I, one guy signed up and sent me a note saying, don't read my name. That's lame, man. So I, I don't know. Um, but I'm going to just mention your first names. Kurt, Liam, Matt, Victor, Jacob, Weston, Philip, Darren. A lot of dudes. Andrea. Hey, thank you. A woman. Andrea. Thomas. Martin. Nick. Hamish. Andrew. Brad. Thomas. Another Thomas. Joe. Jared. Alexis. Justin. Sven. Renee. Terry. Dave. PJ. Chase and Sarah. Robert. Stephen. Alan. Jordan. Carl. Warren. Jeff. Max. Wolf. Dimitri. Nick. Alex. Fritz. Kirk, I love all these international names. So cool to see that there are people out there in the world. Bastian, Safura, well, two two great international names there. Robert Steikar, wow, Steikar, that must be Swedish, maybe Finnish. I don't know. Carl, Dan, Shane, and Aileen, Nathaniel, Jason, Rennie, Nicholas, Fraser, James, Max, Thomas, Noah, Mahmoud, Ruskin, and Kyle. Thank you. All of you, and those of you who signed up before, whose names I never read, thank you too. If you want me to read your name, send me an email through Patreon. I'll read your name. I'll read whatever the hell you want me to read. Um, anyway, thanks. Thanks for that. And also thanks to those of you who support the podcast through the Amazon uh, portal on my uh, website, which uh, is chrisryanphd.com or thatchrisryan.com. I decided to have a website that doesn't have the PhD in it. I, that was a guy who was helping me set up my my web presence a couple of years ago. I may have told you this. We were like looking like, okay, you got to have a Twitter handle. You got to have an Instagram thing. You want to have your website. It's all got to be the same thing. And we checked Chris Ryan and Christopher Ryan and Christopher Patrick Ryan and Chris Patrick Ryan and Chris P. Ryan and Chris and all these, everything. And like, I got a pretty common name. So they were all taken and then he was like, what about uh, Christopher Ryan, Ph.D.? And we checked and like there wasn't another one like, oh, OK, cool. Then we just like slapped it all up. Then later I started getting shit from people. And I noticed on Twitter people were like, oh, you know, he wants everyone to know he has a Ph.D., that fucking arrogant prick. And, um, you know, they got a point. I kind of hate it when people insist on being called doctor. And, and I think it's bullshit. To, you have a Ph.D., you're not a fucking doctor. So uh, I was um, sympathetic to that critique, and uh, and I, I yeah, and then <laughs> and of course Duncan Trussell just to give me shit changed his Twitter handle to Duncan Trussell PhD, which you know that just let all the air out of it. What's a PhD worth if Duncan Trussell's got one? I mean, really, come on now. Um, so anyway, I was talking to someone recently and they're like, dude, you could just change it. It's really, you don't lose your followers or anything. You just, you know, go in and switch it. So, um, yeah, so I switched my Instagram, my Twitter, and, uh, I also re you know, I've got a, a pointer website anyway. So that Chris Ryan.com, or if you prefer the old school, you know, bullshit credential, Chris Ryan, PhD.com takes you to the same place anyway. Um, but I've noticed there's a bit of an upsurge in the Amazon stuff. So it's probably just, you know, 
tis the season people are buying more stuff um but in any case it's cool because i also i've been ordering uh, you know i order all my stuff on amazon through my own thing and my mother does and my aunt does in fact my aunt bought like eight thousand dollars worth of stuff because she's she purchases for this organization she's involved in and she told me like hey, you're gonna get a big boost because i just bought all this stuff through your amazon thing and and nothing happened i didn't see it you know on the report there was no evidence of anything there was no boost in in the affiliate income or anything and uh, i thought she did it wrong or something expired or i don't know what it is and then i last night i looked up the the terms of the conditions of use or whatever in the amazon thing and it turns out that no friends or family can buy through your link they they monitor so they know like any place because apparently i've ordered stuff from my aunt's house or had it delivered to her place or like my sister ordered some stuff and her thing didn't show up so Amazon monitors like they know where I am. They know that any IP address I've used, any address I've had stuff sent to, same last names. So they automatically sort of eliminate any friend or family that has any connection that they're able <clears throat> to establish to me. None of that stuff. I don't get credit for any of that stuff. So it's only you strangers out there, people who I don't actually know who can do that Amazon thing. Apparently, I got to tell my aunt it's not working. Or she has to do it from someone else's computer. I don't know. What the hell? Anyway, thank you. Again, the kindness of strangers. That's what it's all about. Uh, I guess I'm going to let you go. I think that's pretty much all I'm going to bother you with uh, this episode. I'm going to do a Toma uh, or aroma or five, no aroma. I'm going to answer emails. I meant to do it this past week, but, uh, you know, time flies. So I'll, I'll be doing it in the next couple of days, hopefully, but you know, I'm trying to stay in a state of Wu Wei. So I'm trying to keep things as low stress as possible. It's hard to be a hunter gatherer in a, in the modern world though. You know, it's hard to bring that sort of hunter gatherer approach to life um can you hear the parrots i don't know if you can hear their their parrots in topanga squawking it's morning it's uh it's beautiful here but yeah these parrots are pretty loud anyway uh thanks for listening and thanks for uh letting my voice filter into your brain occasionally it's a real honor Hope everything's going great out there for you. This is Ted Slingerland. Oh, I should just mention there are some weird pauses and, and awkward transitions because Frosty the dog had to go out about every five minutes and then had to come back in five minutes later and then like had to like he was just like we wouldn't leave us alone. So and Ted, being very attuned to his dog, was sort of, you know, throwing the bone and letting him in and letting him out. So I tried to edit out a lot of the interruptions. Um, you'll you'll hear some sort of like uh, it sort of stops in the middle and then we come back to it. Um, but uh, I did the best I could. But if it feels weird to you occasionally, that's what happened. Frosty showed up and started barking or scratching at the door and, and we uh, took a pause. So, um, Yeah. There you go. Ted Slingerland, trying not to try. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for telling your friends. Thanks for your iTunes uh, reviews and 
and ratings and all that business. And uh, I will catch you soon. Ciao. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting in a beautiful loft in Vancouver near, what are we near, Granville Island? We're near Granville Island, yep. With, uh, with Ted Slingerland. Yep. And... Rusty? Frosty. Frosty. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he came with that name. <laughs> My daughter I thought you said, let us change it. Yeah. I thought you said Rusty earlier. It's kind of weird thought, for a white it's dog. It's a white yeah. dog, yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe he bleaches his hair. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if you yeah, hear... Yeah, we're talking about you. If you, you go hear, away, go entertain He's yourself. cute. He's a cute dog. Um, so thanks for making time for sure. this, man. Yeah, yeah, this is great. I, I know I, part of my technique for doing these podcasts is to be as unprepared as possible. That sounds like a good, it's a very yeah. Taoist technique. It, it, and you're, <laughs> you're like the first guest, I think, that this actually makes a lot of sense right. for. Yeah. yeah. The only thing that I, Matt told me a bit about your work. He told me about the book, um, what's it called? Trying Not to Try? Trying Not to Try. Right. And then he sent me uh, a big think. Oh, yeah. thing that you did yeah that was right, good right, I, I, yeah. I did one of those too okay yeah I, li- yeah I like that camera setup they have where you yeah. you know I, I forget what it's called but they took it from this documentary filmmaker uh who did the fog of war about um um McNamara. Okay, all right. Uh, and he, he did, he's done a bunch of stuff. He's friends with Werner Herzog. I can never remember his name though, but he came up with that technique where, where there's a reflection of the interviewer that's over the lens of the camera. So right. did they use that with you? They did, yeah. yeah. And that was actually when I was first, that was actually one of the first events I did on the book tour. Uh-huh. So it was helpful because it, you know, I wasn't used to speaking to a camera. That's it, so yeah. Really, you don't, yeah. And, but you make all that eye contact. Yeah, so yeah. on the other side, it's perfect yeah. for the, for the no, viewer. It's very, it's very clever, yeah. Yeah, it's a good... Yeah, now I've, since, I've done also, since then, done some MOOCs, so some of these online courses. Mm. So I've now logged hundreds of hours of uh-huh. talking into a camera so I've gotten right. used to it right. but it's not natural you have to learn how to do it what do you teach do you, do you teach at UBC I teach at UBC I'm in the Asian studies department uh, that's right Yeah. But I, you know it's kind of hard to put me anywhere so I'm yeah. adjunct in psychology and philosophy my PhD is in religious studies so I do a lot of different things and last especially the last 15 years or so I've been working a lot with psychologists and scientists <clears> and <throat> doing interdisciplinary work so it's actually really hard to explain to people what I am or what I do. But yeah. my, my day job, kind of my what my original training is in religion and early Chinese thought and sinology, so classical classical Chinese language. Huh. So what is considered early Chinese? What I consider early is pre so pre unification. So uh, war, the period I focus on is called the Warring States. It's uh-huh. like roughly sixth to third century BCE. And then China gets unified in 221 BC, and mm. then I kind of lose interest. I'm not really sure really. what happens after that. And, and where, <laughs> where was like Genghis Khan and all that? Yeah, well, he was way later. Way, way later. later. Okay, yeah. that's yeah. post. Yeah, it's uh, common era. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Well into the common era. Yeah. Yeah. So this is yeah, it's the beginning. It's the period where we get our first sophisticated writing from China. We have some earlier materials, but this is really when Chinese culture, Chinese thought takes off. It's a period when you have a bunch of these independent states that are all fighting with one another. Right. And so it was very, people sometimes compared to Athens around the same time. Mm. Very vibrant, a lot of competition. You've got thinkers traveling from court to court 
basically peddling their philosophies. So it's a have, feudal kind of situation. Yeah, and you've got independent rulers who are setting, essentially setting up think tanks. They're setting up academies and inviting scholars to come be in residence and debate with one another. So right. it was really interesting, very interesting period. And was it primarily philosophical interest or practical? Because I know all these amazing inventions came out of China. I don't yeah. know, historically, gunpowder. and Right, you know. right. Yeah, it's all kind of tied together. So, I mean, as a religious studies scholar, I, you know, I try to break my students of this distinction between philosophy and religion. Right. It's a, it gets invented in the Enlightenment yeah. in Europe. You know, yeah. it's, so all the early yeah. philosophers were religious. Well, like even Socrates. science and religion and, science and philosophy, right? It was all, yeah. I mean, si- there is something distinctive about science, you know, the creation of modern science. But all thinkers, you know, before yeah. the Enlightenment were religious thinkers. Right. They were explicitly religious. So. Right. Um, and a lot of these people had, you know, pragmatic, their philosophies involve pragmatic things. So there's a group of utilitarians called the Moists who were pacifists, so they uh, thought that offensive warfare was one of the big problems in the world. And they actually trained themselves, they developed defensive warfare technology and and went around supposedly defending cities that were under attack as a way to kind of stop wars from happening. So, you know, they, they actually wrote these very elaborate treatises on, you know, how to defeat uh, siege engines and things like that. So it's, you know, a lot of the practical stuff gets tied up with the philosophy. Right. And that, it sounds like that's reflected in the martial arts tradition in something like Aikido or sure. from what I know about Kung Fu, it's primarily a defensive um, Art that was formed by monks who weren't allowed to have weapons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that sounds right. That's after my period, uh, but the the beginnings of that sort of stuff are definitely going on in the Warring States. Yeah, huh. and a lot of these people who develop these, the, especially the soft martial arts, are inspired by the thinkers I work on. Right, so the early Taoist thinkers I work on. Right. So Taoism is the most ancient known philosophy to come out of that part of the world? Um, no, so all this stuff's happening around the same time. So Confucianism, early Confucianism, uh, what we now call Taoism, it wasn't called that then. This is a label that gets put on it in the Han Dynasty when scholars are organizing the imperial library and they have to label stuff. So they just come up with this term Taoism to figure out where to stick these books. Um, But, you know, these, they they knew the books well, and so they, it wasn't random that they put these thinkers together. But we do tend to project back onto this period some kind of unitary school identification that wasn't there. So you've got uh, Confucians, you've got Taoists, you have the Moists, who are these rational utilitarians. They're really unusual. Um, you have the legalists, so people who are arguing what China needed was, you know, this kind of uh, institutional base, very strict way of ruling a state, organizing a state. They, really, there's, you know, sometimes in Chinese called the period of the hundred schools. So mm. there were really a lot of these different schools uh, debating with one another. And they had common language? Yeah, so they're all writing, they all, each state, and probably even within the states, there were different regional dialects, but everyone wrote classical Chinese. So the thing about Chinese culture is, in what I study is classical Chinese, it was the only form of writing until the 20th century. 
So mm. Chinese didn't start writing in the vernacular until you know early, actually like 1920s or so. And how did that get? Uh, how did that spread through these different distinct cultures? They did this. It probably arose in Yellow Yangtze River Valley, and it just kind of came along with all the other cultural products. This is this became the dominant writing system, uh-huh. and there were regional variations. So um, before the when the Qin unified China in 221, one thing they did was unify the script. Until then, each state had its own style of writing the characters, but they all shared this common literary language. They, right. could, they could all communicate, even if they couldn't communicate verbally, they could write to one another. I was, was going to ask if, yeah. if in debates they could communicate or if it was only... Written. Yeah, we don't know that much about that. It's, it seems like people generally you know, spoke different dialects. People were, were multilingual, as a lot yeah. of people are, in kind of pre-nation state periods. Right. Um, so probably they were able to debate in... There were probably some uh, dialects that were more common than others, and people would tend to use in inter, you know, right. essentially international contexts, just yeah. like people use English now at conferences. Yeah, I always wonder when I'm watching a soccer match and I see two players yelling at each other. Yeah, like, what are they yelling how, at? How do they yeah. know? Yeah, they're yelling, they're probably cursing each other in English. I yeah. guess. I mean, do they, is yeah. there an assumed, unless like you're two Portuguese sure. guys yeah, and yeah. you're used to yelling at each other. But yeah. yeah, people like, default to whatever the standard yeah. lingua franca is. And it used to be French, but now it's not anymore, right? Yeah. Um, and so there probably was a dialect that people would default to in debates and international situations. Right. But they could all read the same stuff. Right. And that's really, in my mind, that's, the best explanation for why Chinese society has mm. remained relatively unified geographically. So they unified a big area, and they're all speaking, they're different languages. They're called dialects for political reasons oh, in modern really? China, but they really are uh, mutually unintelligible. There's at least seven major language groups in China that we call dialects that are any linguist would tell you are different languages. Right. Um, but they could all wrote, they could pronounce the stuff any way they wanted, but they still wrote the same written language. And so the you know spoken languages change over time, but the the kind of stability of the written language created this cultural uniformity right. geographically, and then also over time. So you got people you know in the 19th century you can look at this classical stuff and they read and write in the same language. Right. So, so there's a great con- intellectual continuity. There's a lot of there. intellectual continuity. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Uh, I take it Tibet's not included in all this. Mongolia, Tibet. It depends on what period you're talking about. So, oh, really? Yeah. And it's, I mean, the Chinese cultural sphere was enormous. So it included Japan and v- what we now think of as Japan and Korea and Vietnam. Oh, really? The elites in those places all wrote in classical Chinese and right. um, considered themselves to be scholars because they could converse, you know, they could converse in writing in right. classical Chinese. And this is before there's contact with the Western world? Your, your yeah, period. this is way, yeah, oh, yeah. 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 So when... When was the first contact with the West? 1600, something like that? That's when the first kind of large-scale European-China contact with the Jesuit missionaries mm. going to China. Um, right. But before then, there was obviously, there was trade, indirect, well, the Silk indirect Road, trade right. yeah. um, on the Silk Road. That was, with, what, 1400s? No, no, Marco it was quite, quite early, actually. I mean, um, there's evidence that even around the beginning of the Common Era, oh, really? China was trading indirectly oh. with Rome. Hand to hand to hand. Yeah, people. Not caravans. Know, not, yeah, caravans were bringing it in. So there was contact with, certainly with India, because Buddhism comes mm. around the beginning of the Common Era, but also you have the traders are coming and bringing Western right. products. And we find Chinese stuff showing up in the West quite early. Right. And were there, are you aware, was there the sort of disease? Issue, as far as I know, the the whole sort of massive um, 
infections and things that happen in the new world. Yeah. Was that happening in the first contact in, in no, with Asia? No, because they were a large society. You know, right. they had the same kind of germs yeah. that we had. You know, they had livestock. And, and domesticated they, animals. And plus yeah. there was yeah. so much trade. The Eurasian continent really saw a lot of exchange. So I think yeah. these, these um, uh, resistance to diseases spread fairly right. uh, easily between populations. So, you know, the Chinese have been an agricultural society since uh, probably 3,000 or so BC. Right. So. Rice. Rice in, in the south, um, in the Yangtze River Valley, but actually grain in the north, so millet and oh, then right. wheat. Um, so, yeah. Huh. But they've been agricultural for, for quite a long time. So yeah. the disease issue is really an issue when agricultural societies come into contact with small-scale hunter-gatherers, right? Yeah, yeah, although the Aztecs were agricultural and the Incas. Oh, and they, they didn't have, yeah, that's out. true, they yeah. didn't have, but did they keep livestock? Uh, they did, not nearly as much as the, not the same animals as yeah, the okay. West. There were no pigs or cows, okay. and, you know, tuberculosis yeah, and right, fever, right. swine fever and all that. Yeah, the Chinese had pigs and cows, yeah. so, yeah. yeah. and ducks. Yeah. Yeah. The problem is that in um, North and South America, there were really very few animals that could be domesticated that didn't eat the same foods as, right. as humans. Right. Have you ever read Marvin Harris, the anthropologist? I know, I know the name. Yeah. He taught at Columbia. He was the head of the anthropology department at Columbia. Okay. And he read, he's one of the first anthropology books I read. It's called... Um, oh, man. What was Kings and Can Cannibals and Kings. Okay. And... Uh, fascinating there's a chapter in there about cannibalism and he argued that when you look at societies that were cannibalistic they were societies that were protein starved because they didn't have animals that could be domesticated that didn't eat meat so you can't okay, raise right. dogs for food right because yeah, yeah, they're yeah. eating what you eat right, so right, right. you have to have goats or pigs or something that eats things that you wouldn't eat yeah and so the aztecs didn't have anything like that there's nothing they okay, could grow for yeah. so when you killed someone on the battlefield of course yeah, you'd you eat them protein right? it's meat. Yeah. interesting and so the yeah. christians who looked down their noses on the aztecs for being dirty cannibals killed far more people than the aztecs yeah. did they just yeah, didn't yeah, eat yeah. them did, yeah yeah that's interesting <laughs> so waste is sort of seen, and you know, from the very beginning, waste of, of dead people anyway is seen right. as noble. Right, right. Crazy. That's interesting. Yeah. So how how's a nice guy like you end up in a place like that? How how do you? Where are you from? Are you Canadian originally? No, no. I'm from New Jersey originally, <laughs> and then California for uh -huh. 16 years, uh, and then okay. moved to Vancouver. Right. So I'm a Canadian citizen now, yeah. dual, but um, well yeah, originally done. American. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I bet you're loving that more and more every day. Yeah, right some scary things are going on now. Yeah. But it, actually, there's no refuge from them. I mean, yeah. Canada is going to be in just almost as bad a shape. So um, we're very dependent yeah. on the United States. Yeah. Canada is it's just a, it looks very big geographically. Yeah. It really is just a strip of people living along the 49th parallel. Yeah. You know? yeah. They're in very dependent on the United States yeah. for trade and everything else. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I looked at my wife and I, I told you we were living up here for a couple of uh, summers and, and autumn. Um, so this isn't the first rain I've seen yeah. in Vancouver. But uh, yeah, we were sort of looking at it and thinking of it as a safe refuge. And, and of course, you're right. When if and when global when collapse comes, it's going to be global. Yeah. It's not a regional thing. Yeah. Are you familiar with uh, Ronald Wright's work? No. Um, he has a book called The Short History of Progress. Okay. 
it's fantastic. He's based here in uh, BC, um, one of the islands right out here. Okay. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. He, he sort of goes through every major civilization that's existed and shows how they follow exactly the same life pattern. Okay. And Interesting. All collapse. You right. Know, at some point. Yeah, and uh, and he says there's a line in there where he says, every time history repeats itself. It costs more. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Interesting. Yeah. That, yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. There won't be anywhere to run from this one. But, but Canada does have some some great uh, features. You yeah. Know? It's a it's a very sane society. Yeah. It's one of the things that attracted us right. to this place. It's, and it's a great place to raise a kid. And, yeah. Um, you know, there's a social safety net. It's like Europe. So. You know, people are generally in the same ballpark socioeconomically. Right. Um, you don't have the kind of crazy divides you have in the states. Um, the guns and the yeah, yeah yeah. So it is a very sane society. Yeah. It's nice nice place to be. Yeah. But yeah, so I don't know what got I got into Chinese stuff as a right. teenager. So you're how old are you in your early forties? Forty. That's very kind of you. Yeah, I'm forty eight. <laughs> that's yeah. early. Yeah. That's early stuff. Uh, you're 48. Okay, so I'm six years older than you. Because I'm thinking, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with kung fu. Yeah. So that show. So I think that show got me into it. You oh know, yeah. The kind of mysterious sayings. Yeah. Quite. So Chen I remember. Yeah, and, yeah. I remember being very into that. I got into. Um, I was into science fiction, mm. and that got me. It was very torturous. Uh, that got me into Jungian psychology, mm. and then he wrote a preface to the I Ching, the right. book Changes yeah, Translation by yeah. uh, Richard Wilhelm. Yeah. Um, and then I also realized recently, I think Ursula Le Guin, uh-huh. Left Hand of Darkness. She's got. Uh, she quotes from the Lao Tzu or the Zhuangzi so at the beginning of each chapter. Oh. So um, uh, yeah, there are many different book. pathways, but I was. A science yeah. major. I was actually a molecular biology major my first year, um, yeah. and then switched to. I got fuzzier and fuzzier. I switched to ecology, and then I decided I dropped out of college on the East Coast and moved to California mm. and transferred and, and switched to Chinese. Yeah. Um, yeah. And actually, part of it may have been um, also Jack Kerouac. I was really into Kerouac, yeah. um, and there was a in Dharma Bums. There's a character named Jaffe who's Gary Snyder, the poet Gary right, Snyder. Right. Um, and he's a grad student at Berkeley in East Asian languages, and he hangs around in the mountains and drinks wine and translates poetry. And I was like... Gets yeah, laid a lot. Sound, yeah, gets laid a lot. <laughs> I was like, that seems like a nice lifestyle. I think, I think that's what I'm going to do. Oh, really? Because yeah. the farther I got in science, the more yeah. I realized that I like scientific concepts and mm. I like the approach of science, but actual doing of science... It's really boring, like yeah. <laughs> counting shit yeah. and um, doing statistics. Gathering data. So, yeah. yeah. So um, I realized I just, uh, the humanities kind of suited me more. But then, you know, ironically, I, I circled around and now I'm back doing science again, mm. uh, coming from a humanistic background, but working with colleagues. So it kind of worked out well, because now I work with colleagues who have grad students who know how to count things and do the stats. And, right. you know, I can talk about right. hypotheses and the kind of right. stuff we'd want to test. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's, I'm, I got into it in very kind of random ways. There's no family connection or anything. Yeah. So you, it, didn't, you didn't have a Chinese girlfriend? No. And, no. I just, and so what was it like learning, what I, from what I've heard, learning, um, is it Mandarin that you speak? Or? Yeah. It's not, so what I do is this d- dead language. It's a li- it probably oh, was never spoken. Oh, right. Oh, uh, right. So 
I learned Mandarin just because you do that when you're a Chinese major, but it's right. not my specialty. So I lived in Taiwan in the 80s, late 80s right. for a year. Um, and, you know, my Chinese was quite good in, like, 1988. <laughs> but I don't yeah. use it. I haven't really used it for a long time until moving to Vancouver. I use it mm. more here just because there's such a huge Chinese population. Right. Um, From what I've heard, it's relatively easy as a foreign language. Is that true? No. No. That's not true at all. That's not true at all. Because <laughs> right. uh, I've done a bunch of, I do languages for a living, so oh. I speak several European languages. And uh. um, Chinese is hard because it's tonal. So, That's true. And at yeah. least Mandarin only has four tones. I, right. I tried to learn Cantonese at one point. It's got nine um, yeah. Including, and also some sounds that are really difficult for an English speaker to make these nasal and glottal sounds. Right. Mandarin's pretty straightforward pronunciation wise, except for the tone thing. Uh, but then you have all the characters, right? So right. you got to learn characters one by one. You know, right. got to know about 5,000 to read a newspaper. So. That doesn't sound easy. Who the hell told me it was easy? I don't know. <laughs> Somebody who's never done it, maybe. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> or is born speaking Chinese. Yeah, I've I don't got know. a lot of dumb friends. Maybe <laughs> somebody's. Yeah, no, is, if you're an English speaker, it's much easier to learn it. Cause it, so the second language I did after Chinese was German, and uh -huh. I was just like, oh, this is yeah. so easy. <laughs> it's just like a dialect of English. Yeah, um, yeah. It's yeah. funny how that works. So my first big international travel, I went to India, Nepal, and then Southeast Asia, and there for a couple of years. And then uh, at the end of that, I, I flew to Athens to okay. meet some friends. I'd never been to Europe before. Flying into Athens was like, oh, this back home. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. It's yeah. like, oh, I know how this works. Yeah, so you I, can kind I, of figure I, stuff out. Yeah, it's Greek. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand the language, yeah. but it's it's familiar. It's yeah, strange. it's your culture, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's strange how that works. You get used to something. Yeah, do you know who Wim Hof is, the, the Iceman? No. No, I don't know why he came to mind. Just this, the, the idea of getting accustomed to something extreme and then moving back. He... He climbed Mount Everest in shorts. Okay. And he holds all these world records for exposure to extreme cold. Okay. It's like swimming under ice caps for 100 meters. All and right. Just crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah, better him than me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I sat, I did a podcast with him and actually yeah. sat in ice water really? for uh, two five minute sessions. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that was interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I was thinking about maybe having all my guests immerse themselves in yeah, ice water. Okay. And yeah, <laughs> if you had told me that ahead of time, I would have canceled. <laughs> yes, politely declined. Yeah, so. Exactly. We'll yeah. be doing the podcast in the bathtub. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, so, yeah, so I got into the Chinese, Chinese, Chinese philosophy by way of Kerouac. By That's, way of Kerouac yeah. and science fiction. Yeah. Um, do you write poetry? No. Hang out in the mountains? No, I I read philosophy and hang out in the mountains. That's good. Or enough. by the ocean. That's close um, enough, yeah. But yeah, so it's, um, and then it's just, it, once I got into it more professionally, it just fascinated me. And it mm. really, uh, you know, I I studied a little Western philosophy before I sp switched to the Chinese philosophy. And I never really I found Western philosophers very strange. So I'm talking about Enlightenment thinkers, so people mm. like Kant and Descartes. Mm. Uh, I think, so the thing that, I, I know the passage that made me think I'm never going to study this stuff professionally. In Kant's groundwork of the metaphysics of morals, he's talking about this person who is amiable, who's very nice, and they kind of, uh, they're good to people, and everyone likes them. And he says they're okay, um, but they're not moral because they're not doing it consciously. 
So people, so basically, someone who's honest just because they're honest, in his view, is not really honest in a moral sense because mm. they're doing it out of habit. You have to arrive at it through thought. You have to arrive at it through applying the categorical imperative and then consciously choosing to do it. Hmm. And I just thought that was such a bizarre way to look at the world. Like I'd like, I'd prefer the person who's like honest spontaneously. And so that's what got me into the Chinese stuff because they have this separate ideal. For them, the ideal is not this cognitive control, rational ideal. It's this ideal of, of wu-wei or effortless action. So right. getting into a state where you're spontaneously doing the right thing. You don't have to try. You're not exerting yeah. effort. It's you've acquired, you've internalized these new norms and behaviors. And so you can do it spontaneously and unselfconsciously. And that's how you know that you're actually really moral is that you've internalized it perfectly in that way. Yeah, in a way, the way you describe the, the Kantian approach sounds anti-moral to me. It sounds like the way a psychopath would get away with acting, thinking it through, like, oh, I should be this yeah. way because this is what the society's expecting and I'll be punished or I won't get what I want, whereas the spontaneity... Well, it can't be, pu it can't be punishment you're worried about. So for Kant, it definitely <laughs> can't be that you're worried about consequences. That uh -huh. would also be heteronymous, where you're uh -huh. not following your true nature. So it's really that you have to, as a free agent, and you can see his worry, so his worry is that um, if you're relying on emotions or habits, they could vary from person to person. Mm. They're not necessarily reliable. They can be corrupted not, by be corrupted. political forces. They're not universalizable. Right. Yeah. I mean, the now that I've kind of can look back at it, I, you see the point of Enlightenment thought, which is you know we want to get away from tradition and right. critical uh, thinking. We want critical thinking yeah. where we can actually stand outside of habits and tradition right. and critique it because we have an objective way of doing it. Right. It's just that that's not true. <laughs> so right. it's, I mean, the other thing I work on is is sci cognitive science and philosophy, and um, it's pretty clear that we're not disembodied minds that our thought processes are not 100% transparent to us, sure. that emotions are crucial for anything that you'd want to consider reason. You know, right. Demacio's work, right. um, and the work of people like John Haidt on moral dumbfounding. And, right. um, it's pretty clear that most of our, our moral judgments are driven by emotions, essentially. Is that um, Descartes' error is Demacio? Descartes' error is Demacio, yeah. and then you know uh, John's most famous one is the... Uh, the uh, emotional dog and the rationalist tail. Uh, so, you know, he's basically demonstrating through these very cleverly designed experiments that uh, people are making moral judgments based on emotional reactions. But then if you ask him about it, they'll invent these ex post facto right. stories about, right. but you, he can demonstrate that that's completely confabulated. It's not why they yeah. did it. Um, and so, yeah. so, so basically the this enlightenment ideal is not psychologically realistic. And so one of the things I've been well, wait, wait, sorry to yeah. interrupt, but I want to nail this down a little bit because the, the ideal is that we arrive at our decisions through rational thought. Mm -hmm. And we can actually be purely rational so ah, that's one okay. of the assumptions. Well, that's we a, can be purely rational. That's a weak point. We, yeah. uh, Pure rationality gives us access to a world of truth that is objective and kind of stands independently of human beings and mm, um, okay. that we can be fully transparent to ourselves psychologically so we can choose you know, to follow the moral law 
and we know all everything that's going on with us, which right. again is clearly, clearly right. not true. They're, <laughs> like actually, we, they're saying that's actually in a, a state that we can arrive at, or it was an ideal toward which we should aspire. They think they think that that's how we can, when we're functioning as philosophers, we can do that. Oh, and that's okay. what, so it's both a normative idea. It's a normative ideal, but it also they think it's obtainable by human beings. Right. Um, right. And I think the problem is is if it's not, which it's not. You need another strategy, um, mm. and that's where I think that so in philosophy it's called virtue ethics. So the idea that the way you get people to behave properly is by cultivating virtues, which are essentially habits. They're they're um, self-activating, internalized dispositions to act in a certain kind of way in certain situations. And, and who determines what counts as a virtue or a vice? That's the so that's the part that the Enlightenment people hate about virtue ethics is it's essentially tradition or social authority. Mm. So how do you know what courage is? Right. Uh, Aristotle, who is a virtue ethicist, said, well, we look to the courageous people. Who are, the, who are they? Well, we know who they are. You know, kind of <laughs> the people. So it's yeah. just, he, Aristotle, it's called the good person criterion in Aristotle. Uh. And essentially the Confucians have the same idea. How do you know what the right thing to do is? It's what Confucius would do in this situation. So we've got these, since you're not, since you don't have algorithmic, objective ways of determining what's right, so either deontological maxims or utilitarian reasoning, mm. what do you have? You have these kind of essentially gut reactions of well-trained, virtuous people. Which are, which are potentially evolved? Well, there. So I think I think the most plausible story is, um, is is actually that of Mencius, one of these Confucian thinkers, who thinks it's partly we're latching on to. He doesn't use this terminology, but essentially we're latching on to evolved moral emotions. So we've got these moral emotions like compassion, right. or the injustice reaction where we right. get angry at injustice. Right. Um, those are inborn and probably shared by other species, not just humans. Friends of right? all, yeah, argued friends of all stuff. Yeah. So, like the yeah. capuchin monkey experiment, right. that's a great example of this. For the, the record, the, the un, yeah. <laughs> Ted made the throwing motion. Yes, <laughs> yeah, the throwing, <laughs> the the throwing screw the cucumbers these, in your face. Stupid cucumbers, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you yeah. shove these cucumbers. That's somewhere. a great. So, yeah, it's a great yeah. video. But yeah. that's a great uh -huh. um, illustration of this reaction that actually you see in uh, early Chinese philosophers describing that uh -huh. people will reject. In Mencius, he talks about a beggar who is about to die without, if he doesn't get some nutrition, and someone offers him a bowl of soup in a in an insulting manner. Uh, I mean, it's not clear what that means, but probably like they spit in it, right? And they give it to him, and it's still edible, and it'll still save his life, but he won't take it. And Mencius says, you know, we value some things more than life, and but that the mm. beggar refusing that bowl of soup is a lot like the capuchin monkey saying, right. "Fuck this cucumber," right. you know, I don't want it if that's how it's going to go down. Right. Um, yeah. And so, so, so we have these innate moral emotions. Yeah. But they they're they're not terribly reliable and they also need to be extended. So like compassion needs to be extended past just, if we're gonna live in especially in large scale societies, it has to be expanded past just our family and friends. Right. And so this, the mention story is that we then culturally train ourselves so we extend and strengthen these, these what he calls sprouts. He thinks the initial, that kind of caption monkey reaction, mm. he calls the sprout of righteousness, hmm. and it's not really a virtue yet because it's not strong enough, it's not reliable hmm. enough. But if you train it, it yeah. yeah, it's an impulse. But you can train it and guide it, and then it will grow into the full virtue of righteousness. What he right. calls righteousness. Interesting. Um, 
so that's, you know, this Confucian virtue ethic is basically trying to tap into our evolved psychology, but then train it and guide it in certain ways. So where does the, this, this ancient Chinese philosophy fall in terms of human nature? These sprouts, do they essentially believe that humans are compassionate and... Mencius does. Mencius. <laughs> it's actually a huge debate in early... So uh, famous, most famous debate in my period is about human nature. Right. So he, Mencius says human nature is good, and, and really what he means by that is potentially good. We right. have these moral sprouts, potentialities. Yeah. His opponent, the guy who comes after him, Shunza, says, no, human nature is bad. And he's, he says basically we, we have no morally salient emotions when we're born. Everything we learn about morality, we have to get from the outside through cultural training. So it's a training. blank slate argument. It kind of, yeah. I mean, it's not, yeah. I mean, blank slate in the sense that there's no stuff in there that's helpful. He thinks there's plenty of stuff in there. Oh, oh <laughs> He thinks we've got all kinds of instincts, but okay. they're all bad. So it's um, a Hobbesian... Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of Hobbesian story. So our yeah. innate nature is... Uh, is bad. He actually talks about the state of nature, and it sounds a lot like Hobbes. He says you've got, um, you know, people pursuing their desires. Human desires are unlimited. Resources are limited. Therefore, chaos. And so Malthusian yeah. in for. Uh, so what do you, but, you know? Yeah. But the interesting thing is, what do you do about it? And Shunza thinks you can actually retrain people's emotions. So that's the virtue ethical strategy. Yeah, so there's no unified model of human nature. That's that's what actually a lot of the debates are about. Right. And so you can see where if you're a if you're a Shunzian, if you think human nature does not have any kind of morally salient instincts, you're also going to tend to be more conservative, right? right? You're going to think that strict education is important. Right. So I actually think this debate reflects this kind of universal human division between liberals and conservatives. I mean, because yeah. every religious yeah. tradition I know of ends up having this split. And well, it, 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 for me and from my you know, in my paradigm, it goes even further back than that. It's hunter-gatherers versus farmers. Okay. You know, a hunter-gatherer essentially looks at the world as a, a, benefic a, a beneficent, uh, generous, beneficent, wonderful... Yep, yep. How do you say that? Beneficent. Beneficent. Yep. Uh, uh, and, and there's a sense of gratitude. Yep. Uh, it's a friendly place. The gods love us. We're, everything's wonderful. Yeah. They're, they're, all hunter-gatherers think that? I wouldn't say all hunter-gatherers think anything, but I think it's a general... Uh, understanding of their place in the world, that they are integrated into the world, the world provides what is needed. Mm -hmm. So when farmers show up and try to introduce them to working for food, yeah. they're universally rejected. Okay. Uh, there are virtually no cases that I'm aware of of hunter-gatherers voluntarily picking up a hoe and, and okay. learning to farm. Okay. Um, you know, and this idea that you have to work for your bread and that the gods are angry and jealous and you know you, you constantly they're going to punish you and well that's part of our yeah we've i mean our big religion project i work with ara noren zion and joe henrik and mm. we have this big grant to oh, look at the right, origins of, right. of what ara calls big god religions but right. basically that it's only when you get agriculture that you need kind of punishing all-knowing social control social control yeah. gods and right. agents of gods who can whereas in hunter-gatherer because they're so small scale the yeah. the sprouts that that you were talking about are uh, are operative because yeah. everyone knows each other yeah. and reputation yeah. 
So uh, kin selection and reciprocal altruism will get you everything you need on small scale societies. <laughs> Pretty so much. Yeah, yeah, it gets trickier when you move to large scale societies. Well, you, you know Dunbar's number, right? Yeah. Where yeah. suddenly people become abstractions, and you can do things to an abstraction you would never do to someone whose eyes you had to look into. Yeah. You know? Well, you're also interacting. You're off engaged often in one-off interactions with strangers. Right. So people you're not so related to, you're never yeah. going to see them again. Yeah. And so the tricky thing is getting cooperation to work in that situation. And yeah. that's actually, interestingly, again, one of the, the early Chinese were worried about this. A lot yeah. of their political moral philosophy was, they would, again, wouldn't use this terminology, but essentially how we make that leap from small-scale societies to large-scale societies, what kind of new mm. cultural technologies we need to make that work. Right. Um, it's interesting how these are such eternal, I mean, you know, from ancient China to the, yeah. you know, the uh, European philosophy to today, you know, Steven Pinker on one side yeah. and, you know. Yeah. Um, well, your view also is represented in early China. So you've got the Confucians who are worried about how to make this transition happen smoothly. And mm -hmm. um, and then you have these primitivists that are associated with Lao Tzu, so the Tao Te Ching, one the, right. the earliest Taoist thinkers. I mean, there probably never was a Lao Tzu, but there was this primitivist community that produced this text. Hmm. Um, and they basically think the whole thing was a mistake. We should go back to small-scale societies. Hmm. Interestingly, not hunter-gatherers. They think the natural state of humans is small agricultural communities. Right. Um, but they think all of the problems of the warring states are caused by civilization. And if we could just undo our cultural training, if we can undo the the actual f institutional framework. So they think we have to break up large states and everyone right. needs to live in these small communities and right. not travel and not move from place to place. But they think that's the, that's the problem. Right. And we can actually get back into <laughs> harmony with our original yeah. nature, which is right. simple, um, easily satisfied. Right. They've got actually a very sophisticated um, anti-consumerist Model. They they talk about this principle called reversion fan, where something you pursue something it turns into the opposite. Mm, um, that's an but interesting concept. One way you could translate it is uh, hedonistic treadmill. Right, <laughs> you know, so right. they were very aware that. Uh, society creates artificial needs, and then you pursue them, and you get them, and then they'll, they'll set up some new artificial need. Wow. You know, you're happy with your MacBook Air, right. but then the MacBook Pro comes right. to look at that Retina <laughs> screen, and suddenly you're, you hey, look at your screen. That's and it below the belt. Yeah, you're like, oh man, I, <laughs> I share that. Be, I share that off the record. <laughs> my <laughs> computer's not so cool anymore, and so I want that they, Retina they, display. They really, yeah. they think that that is how society seduces us. Right. Civilization seduces us away from our true nature. Yeah. But they think you can stop it. Like if you can just retreat back into kind of a rural, simple lifestyle mm. without writing. They even want us to go to preliterate society. Yeah, I mean, it makes me right. sound like Pol Pot, but I agree with some of that stuff. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, I made my living like, from you, writing. You would, like, but, you would like the Tao Te Ching just from what I've read. Well, I've, 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 read, I've read some of it, yeah. Uh, that was a stuffed duck landing <laughs> yeah. on the coffee table yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So was meditation an integral part of this tradition? Yeah, so um, in the Tao Te Ching, it's not clear, although it's, I think it's likely. Hmm. There are hints of it in the Tao Te Ching. But we know that uh, around that time or not that long after, you have people explicitly writing treatises on meditation, right. so how to sit 
how to breathe, right. um, developing theories about the chi, you know, this right. kind of vital energy, flow of energy and how you get the flow of energy working yeah. through your body. So that um, that goes back to the, the origins of uh, Chinese thought. If, yeah, yeah, no, the earliest stuff. So Lao Tzu, you see hints of it, and Zhuangzi, this other text that's often called Taoist. Um, you, you, you have what seem to be uh, presentations of either meditation or possibly even psych- psychedelic use. So oh, really? One story where yeah. um, this guy comes out of this trance and somebody has been sitting in front of him watching him. And it almost feels like that was his minder, kind of making sure if he had a bad trip, there was something right. there to. Right. Um, and he emerges from this trance state and says he's lost himself. And um, it's not clear if he was doing some kind of meditation or if he was taking some kind of substance. But, right. um, and then there are some other passages that clearly are referring to. Um, this is the first time we get the phrase used, zuo uh, wang, to sit and forget. Hmm. But it seems to be some kind of objectless meditation that they're practicing that right. became the, the basis of later on chans and meditation. Right. All that Wh- stuff which also sort days. of a return to simplicity, right? And yeah. meditation is like back to basics, you know, unadorned consciousness. That's the idea. So they all have, so in the case of the Tao Te Ching, they think you can get back in touch with this originally pure, simple nature. In the case of the Zhuangzi, he thinks that uh, the problem is really humans. Humans are by nature messed up mm. in a way that other species are not because we have this heart-mind, the mind essentially, right. that makes right and wrong distinctions and creates rigid categories right. and that cuts us off from the world. And so we have to do something to, to get fast away the mind. And if we can do that, if we can make our mind empty, there is a force inside of us, this thing called the spirit, that will take over, that's good, and kind of comes from heaven and will lead us to do the right things. Right. So, yeah, they both have a picture. In, in Lao Tzu, it's a little more simple in the sense that he thinks our nature is good. And I think he would say, you know, kids raised on a desert island would be good at first, mm. at least. Whereas Zhuangzi thinks anytime you have people, you're going to have trouble. Right. Because we just, it's our nature to be unnatural, essentially. And right. so we've got to, um, we got to, get rid of this one part of our nature that's kind of messed up, that cuts us off from reality and from the way, from the Tao. And where is awareness of death in all this? Um, so the Zhuangzi talks about death a lot. Um, it's, it's one of the big themes of the text, is that we, our mind also makes us afraid of death. But how do we know that death is the end? How do we know... Why, how do we know that the next life is bad? How do we know what happens to us after we die? Mm-hmm. Um, we just don't know. And so why should we be afraid of it is essentially the Zhuangzian view. Mm. Um, it's like Mon- Montaigne. Yeah. It is the same. But it's clear, you know, so some people say, well, so the Chinese weren't worried about the issue of death. But obviously, Zhuangzi wouldn't write this unless everyone right. was worried about death, right? right. Um, so, but he's, he's arguing we really need to have a different attitude than we have towards death. Right. So, um, yeah, no, the, the, is there a heaven hell thing going on in, in this philosophy? No. So the one interesting feature of pre-Buddhist Chinese thought is it's very this worldly in the sense that all of the religions are focused on getting you well adjusted right. to this life and connected to the Tao in this life, the way, um, 
And they don't really, so in the Analects, famously, a student asks, you know, what happens after we die? And Confucius says, shut up, just worry about being good. <laughs> don't worry about that. You're, you, you're basically, you're, you have enough problems trying to be good in this life. That's just the don't, best worry about, shut don't worry up. about it. Yeah, essentially, <laughs> equivalent in classical Jedis. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the focus is on being a good person in this right. world. Um, right. Zhuangzi, there's hints that, like, maybe when we die, the stuff we're made out of gets recycled and turned mm. into something else, but it's not really a focus. And there clearly were afterlife beliefs. So you know, you look at the tombs. There's mm. elaborate depictions of the afterlife. Right. I read uh, a book about Taoist um, sexuality. Okay. Uh, which I found interesting. Yeah, that stuff is later after the period I studied. It seemed like it would have been. Yeah, it was more courts and and all this stuff about. Um, Every time a man over 40 has an ejaculation, he loses two or three years of his life. Oh, yeah, yeah, they were very worried about that. Yeah, I'm, being... I'm living proof that that's not the case, <laughs> yeah. I have to say. Okay, let's get um, rid of squeaky thing. Go. But, uh... Go get it. Yeah, so yeah. They, you know, that is this later development where they start to worry about uh, immortality. Mm. They start to, this offshoot of, of Taoist practice starts to get obsessed with extending the lifespan and right. becoming immortal. And right. uh, one of the ways they tried to do that was eating cinnabar, which is a form of mercury, which turns out doesn't work that very well. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, pro it's probably how the first emperor of Qin died, actually. Uh, we think maybe he was experimenting with some of these practices right. and, and poisoned himself. Um, but then another way they did it, another way they did it was meditation, so doing kind of qigong-like things to collect your essence, vital essence, and make it stronger. Yeah. But some of them were sexual practices. They yeah. believed the chi was kind of concentrated in your sperm. Right. If you keep it and build it up, it would give you immortality. Right. It's very uh, Dr. strange loving. Yeah, it's very know, strange. So that stuff's after the period that I work on. Right, right. Um, but they were inspired in some cases by texts like the Tao Te Ching and the Dwangza. Right. So, so the the period that you work on, and, and specifically your your book, is this your only book? The this is my only trade book. So oh, I have okay. lots of academic books. And when did it come out? It came out in two thousand fourteen. Oh, good. So, so it's available. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It's available in all formats. There's an audio book. Ah, oh, good. Did you read uh, the audio book? No, no, that would be terrible. Why? Well, you have a I don't good, think. You have a no, good maybe voice. I just yeah. They didn't even they gave, they gave me a choice of people. They said you can hear three people we might use, and I uh -huh. had to choose the person who did it. Uh -huh. um, I think he did a good job. Uh -huh. But uh, yeah, so the book is about you know it's called trying not to try. Ancient China, modern science, and the power of spontaneity. So it's mm. focused on this ideal of wu-wei, so right. effortless action. Uh, the state, it's kind of like being in the zone in the sport. Flow. It's right. like flow, and right. I talk about flow and how it's like flow and how it's different from flow. So, um, you know, Chiksimihai has this. Do you know how to say his name? I, I, <laughs> yeah. didn't, I didn't even want to try. Well, I went to school with his son. So, oh, good. Uh, his, okay. The reason I know about him is because I went to school with his son, Mark, who does what I do Chinese philosophy. Oh, really? And ah. That's how I got to know Mihai as well. Oh, okay. Um, so so you know him personally? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah, great. Yeah, nice. no, and his, his son's a good colleague of mine. So, you know, I think he's the one who hooked me up with Flo back in like 1991, whenever it hmm. came out. Um, and I remember thinking even then that, hey, this is a lot like um, Wu Wei. But there's a one passage where he's talking about so so he wants to distinguish flow from things that might look like flow but aren't so like vegging out in front of the TV mm. or watching some you know playing a stupid video game right 
where you, it has some of the hallmarks. So you lose a sense of the passage of time, you lose mm. a sense of yourself, but you emerge feeling kind of enervated and not, it wasn't a pleasant experience. We right. don't want to call that flow. Right. And so he says, well, what's distinctive about flow then? And he decides it's challenge and complexity. Mm. So there's this, you get into this flow channel when your skill is just at a point where it's the thing you're doing is not too hard because then you get frustrated mm -hmm. and it's not too easy. Then you would get bored. You're kind right. of engaged because you're challenged. Right. Um, and that fits, I think, a lot of experiences we'd want to call flow. So like rock climbing or yeah. especially individual sports, or maybe sports in general. But the problem is he's got, in, even in that flow book, he's got this one story about this woman who lives in the Italian Alps, and she's describing her flow state. And she says, you know, I get up in the morning, and I take the cows to the pasture, and then I card some wool, and then I do this other thing. She's doing the same stuff she does every single day. Not real challenging. <laughs> um, yeah. It's the stuff her ancestors have been doing. It's not challenging. It's not and it's not very complex, actually. Mm. And so, and the, later on, when he started doing survey data uh, gathering, he found that most people report flow in very low complexity, low challenge situations. So people report flow when they're having dinner with friends or they're playing with children. Or so it doesn't. His model doesn't fit actually his data, and that's where I think mm. way is actually more accurate because it includes stuff like rock climbing and being engaged. Right. Because the for the early Chinese, what distinguishes Wu Wei is that you're absorbed in something bigger than yourself. And it's something that you care about. It's normatively positive. So, so there's meaning. There's meaning. And embeddedness. Yeah. Uh, meaning and embeddedness. It takes you out of yourself. And for them, it was a religious concept, right? You're in touch with the Tao. Yeah. But I think what I argue in the book is that in contemporary ter terms, it could be formal religion. Some people get it in formal religion. Right. But it could be anything that you value. So it could be you know, hobbies that you really care about. Mm. It could be just a landscape that... You like. Do you have to be participating, or can you just be an observer? You can be an observer. You can be in a state of way just looking out at a view. Or right? just watching your <laughs> just team play. Watching your team play if you're mm -hmm. really absorbed in it and you care about it and mm -hmm. it's important for you. Right. Um, and so the book is partly about trying to explain what contemporary examples of Wei would be. It's also partly about this other very important concept called duh. Unfortunately, it's pronounced duh, <laughs> which my students always laugh when I say it, yeah. but it's, that's yeah. how you pronounce it in Mandarin. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, I think it's usually translated as virtue with a capital yeah. V, but I think something like charismatic power or charisma, yeah. or even authenticity. More recently, I started to think that authenticity might be a good translation for it. Hmm. But it's basically this, when you're in a state of wu-wei, you have this power. You radiate this power. Mm. And it's what, if you're a Confucian, attracts people to you and makes them want to follow you without you having to make them follow you. It's like a sense of leadership. It's a yeah. leadership power. Right. When, if you're a Taoist, it's what relaxes people around you and you can mm. move through them smoothly and you kind of everyone right. you relax charm. other charm. Yeah. But also, like, you get people to relax into their true right. nature. You, you actually help them spiritually. Huh. Um, and so again, it's a for the early Chinese a religious concept. So you're in when you're in a state of Wu Wei, you're in harmony with heaven, who's this anthropomorphic supreme being. So heaven gives you duh, as a power, so you can be successful. Right. But I'm arguing in the book that uh, you can tell a naturalistic story about this, and it relates to these uh, tensions around human cooperation and trust. So I, I look at people like Robert Frank, the economist Robert Frank, yeah. so his idea about the commitment strategy that emotions 
are a way, we often confront cooperation dilemmas that can't be solved by rational, self-interested individuals. <clears throat> so prisoner's dilemma is the classic right, example. Right. But th there's all sorts of situations where rational, self-interested agents will get a suboptimal outcome. Mm -hmm. And yet in real life, we solve prisoner's dilemmas all the time. Yeah. And we do it with emotions. So right. things like love right. or loyalty or honor. And the thing about emotions is that they're, they're, they bind us in a way where we don't have immediate control over them, right? If you feel love for someone, you've now actually committed yourself, you've bound yourself in certain ways you wouldn't be if you weren't really in love. Right. Um, so that, it's a great solution to these cooperation dilemmas, but it's vulnerable to this particular sort of defection, what economists call defection, which is hypocrisy. So if I can fake love effectively. Right. I get all the payoffs of our loving relationship, but as soon as my self-interest tells me to do something else, I'm out of there. Mm. Um, and so you're going to expect, a, first of all, an evolutionary arms race between people getting better at faking commitments and people getting better at detecting that. Mm. And you're also then going to, th I argue, a kickoff byproduct of this is an attractiveness that we feel when we, we don't get signs of effort kicking off from somebody. And you know when you when you exert cognitive control, you kick off signs your, in your body language, pupils of your eyes, your little facial expressions. Control of what the, that you're working to understand. You're working that to, you're thinking. To, you're either thinking consciously about mm -hmm. something or you're planning. So you're caught. You're basically you're following. You're being honest because you stop and go. Could I will this to be the categorical imperative? Or you're saying you know what would people think about me if I did this? Right. We don't trust people who think too much, basically, or uh, who try too hard. And there's good, uh, so I look at some of the social psychology evidence. Yeah, that in, dating, definitely. Well, da dating is the classic example yeah. I use. So, um, you know, we don't like people who are trying too hard. Desperation. So pe people yeah. always say, you know, if you have a date or like a job interview, well, be yourself. But that then gets you into the, what I call the paradox of way, or the, this paradox of trying not to try is how do you, if you're not in that state of like self-confidence, how do you get there? <laughs> yeah, fake you can't, it till you make it. Fake it. So one strategy, the Confucian strategy, is essentially fake it till you make it. Mm -hmm. um, the Taoists think that that's disastrous, that you're going to end up becoming this hypocrite. Um, and so you've got to get back in touch with your true nature, and that's how you do it. Right. Um, one of the things I argue in the book is that it actually is a genuine paradox, because essentially one of the ways I, I illustrate it is using this game. Actually, it's sci you can see Science World off there in the distance. That, oh, at the end of the... That sphere out there. Yeah. Um, so that's a science museum, and they have this yeah. game called Mind Ball, yeah. where you sit at... So we'd be sitting at opposite ends of this long table, and there's this little metal ball between us. And the goal is to push the ball to the other end of the table. So it's a pretty simple setup. But you've got to push it with your mind. And so you're leaning your head against an EEG sensor, and it's picking up alpha and theta waves. Oh, biofeedback. I was going to ask you. It's like a biofeedback thing. Yeah. So um, it's alpha and theta waves are what you kick off when you're relaxed, when right. you're not thinking anything, when you're not trying. So the right. way the game is designed is the more alpha and theta waves you produce, the harder you push the ball. Mm. And so the way to win at mind ball <laughs> so is to not try concept. to is to out relax your opponent. That's a great it's concept. great. It's a, and I love this game because yeah. it, it, it's the paradox of trying not to try compressed into like yeah. the smallest possible. Beautiful stage. illustration. It's a beautiful of illustration. It. Um, yeah. You know, it's funny. The first time I played, um, it's great to get people to also just play it to really feel it viscerally because right. I. Um, 
you know, I was like, I'm gonna, I do Chinese philosophy. I'm going to do some Zen stuff. I'll be great at this. <laughs> and I had my eyes closed, and I could hear you can hear the ball moving around. It makes this sound when the ball's moving. And so I knew something was happening, and it, finally I couldn't take it. I had to look. And I opened my eyes, and the ball was most of the way to the end of the other end of the table. So I, and I thought, oh, I'm winning. And as soon as I thought that, the ball stopped uh, and turned around and started rolling back toward me. And I was wow. like, stop thinking, stop wow. thinking. But, you know, I'd lo- at that point, I had lost it, right? And so... That's a, that's a really profound experience. That's it's great. A great. It's a great illustration of the same tension you have yeah. when you are going on a date. Yeah. And your friends are like, dude, you're all uptight, relax. And you're right. like, okay, I'm going to relax. I'm going to try to relax. How do I relax? <laughs> How do you relax? I suck at relaxing. Yeah, I suck at relaxing. <laughs> you know, or, or even in an insomnia, you know, yeah. you, you, yeah. you know, you need to sleep. I'm not sleaving. And, and it's really thinking, five hours left. Yeah, and you're, yeah. you know that if you can just shut your mind off. Yeah. And so my, part of my point is that it really is a direct cognitive paradox because essentially the part of your mind you need to shut down is the part you're using when you're thinking about shutting right. it down. So you're activating right. your system right. too, essentially, when you need to shut that down, your cold Which cognition. is, I mean, it's why meditation is so useful yep. in all this, because yeah. that's learning how to stop that. Yeah, you know, but not directly. So you can't but directly. not fighting it, yeah. right. It's so like the ball. Not yeah. You're not fighting it. You're you're letting it bubble up and dissipate. And yeah. yeah. That's one strategy. So yeah. you know these meditative strategies, I argue, is uh, an attempt to use the body to get around the mental paradox. Mm. So it is a mental paradox. But right. Essentially, what the so Soto Zen basically just says, you know, sit like this. Right. You know. Well, I still have thoughts. Well, don't worry about it. Yeah. As you said, let them come, let them go. Yeah. But if you sit like this, eventually your thoughts will settle. And that strategy goes all the way back to Warring States China. You see right. in texts like this book called The Inner Training. Yeah, it's amazing how, how these issues are so current. And, yeah. you know, as, as you're pointing out, they go back so far. Have you ever done a sensory deprivation No, tank? no, we have them now in Vancouver. Like yeah, a bunch of them. Yeah, you should yeah. definitely do it. I did one just a few days ago. I've done, right. I've done a lot. Yeah, yeah. Do you know Joe Rogan? You know who he is? I've heard the name. He has a big podcast. Okay. You know, Sam Harris has been on his okay. podcast a bunch of times. And, uh, um, yeah, Neil deGrasse Tyson. And okay. He's got, you know, a million downloads yeah, per yeah. episode. Crazy. Okay. Um, but he's really into float tanks, and his his enthusiasm for it has sort of relaunched the whole industry. Okay, yeah, it's, it's recent. So recently, yeah. We well, had, like, I mean, I just open, and we just had another one open. Yeah, right up on three, West Fourth yeah, here, fourth, the Float yeah. House or something. something like it's, that, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, definitely, definitely check them out. Uh, it's very interesting because I've I've done a lot of meditating over the years, and. My problem with meditation is um, sort of the opposite of what you're describing there. I find my body gets in the way. My back hurts, yeah, my back knees hurts, hurt, knees my hurt. hips hurt. You know, I'm not particularly flexible, yeah. so forget about the lotus position. Yeah. You know, even <clears throat> cross legs is uncomfortable. Yeah. But when I got in a flow tank the first time and my body disappeared, yeah. then it was like, ah. Oh, here I am. This is where I've been trying to get all this time, and now it's just me and my thoughts, so now I can actually, you know, focus on letting this go. Yeah. And then I I had these experiences. I don't know if it was the first time or maybe the second or third time. It takes a while because, you know, it takes a while to peel back the layers of onion and just get through all your bullshit, but I did get to a state where I was waking up, but I hadn't been asleep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there, that was the awareness that I was in a place that I 
I, I, where when I'm there, I'm unaware. Mm -hmm. But looking back retrospectively, yep. I could see I'd been yeah. there. Yeah, that's like, so, you know, there are these skill stories in the Zhuangzi where, like, there's this butcher cutting up the socks, and he just falls apart effortlessly, and he moves his knife, and he never touches even in the smallest bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, But then the Lord who's watching this stops him and says, hey, what did you do? And so clearly now he's fallen out of Wu Wei right. and is being asked to reflect back onto it. Right. So he's not in Wu Wei when he's talking about it. Yeah. It's just like when you come out of that yeah. state and you're looking back. Yeah. Um, but that's the trick is then how do you get back into it? Right. So maybe, maybe the float tank makes it easier, but you can't bring the float tank around with you everywhere, right? You can't no. live your life in a float tank. So no, no. you got to figure out strategies for how to actually create spontaneity when you need it in real life. And so partly yeah. the book is about how you've got, in early China, essentially four different strategies get developed. Hmm. And I think they it, they basically explore the possible logical space of solutions to the problem. And none of them ever wins. And what you see in the history of East Asian religion is these ones just cycle around. So mm. people say, this is the solution. Everyone who wants to be a Zen Buddhist has to believe that this is the solution. And as soon as they say that, it fragments again into you know, people doing right. the different strategies but calling it that thing. Right. Um, and so because it is a real paradox, there's no solution. But I think, you know, it's depends i think the reason you want to have these different strategies is the barriers to spontaneity are going to vary from situation to situation so mm -hmm. like the problem you have when you're nervous before a date or an interview may be different than the problem you have when you need to hit a golf putt and you can't just right. shut down your mind and just right. hit it um Life stage probably matters. Mm. So, like earlier on, you're right. probably the what I call the carving polishing strategy, the Confucian "fake it till you make it," mm -hmm. work hard so that you can stop trying strategy right. is probably more important. But then, and once you actually have developed skills, you need more of the Taoist kind of forgetting or making your mind empty. It's like uh, jazz musicians always say: yeah. you have to learn your scales before yeah. you can improvise. Exactly. Yeah. So that's one of the examples I use. Actually, my brother-in-law is a jazz pianist in uh, Rome, so he's. Uh, we've talked about this a lot because right. you know, for him, it's. Um, you know, he's got this piece where he has a whole album called um, "I'll Be Bach." <laughs> like he likes puns. He's got a chorus at the ear, but it's him being playing Bach. Uh -huh. Which he plays beautifully. Dressed as Arnold Schwarzenegger. As a, yeah, <laughs> dressed as Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he starts, he messes with it. So he starts uh -huh. playing it straight and then he starts doing weird things. Like he starts doing weird riffs under the melody. Oh. Or he, you know, changes the timing. Really? And it's beautiful, but you can only do that if you can really play Bach yeah. well. You, know? yeah. you can't. If I tried to do that, yeah. it would sound ridiculous. That's like the Goldberg so. variations. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's fantastic, yeah. but totally like not traditionally performed Bach. I love Bach. That, that's yeah. Desert Island right there. Yeah. Like if I could take one yeah. composer, either Bach or Beethoven's late quartets, I think. Are the yeah. So that's the thing. So yeah. this, you know, the yeah. kind of spontaneity you get in a skill, right? Like, playing jazz or something yeah. um, has to be the end result of lots and lots of training. But the right. problem then is that, you know, people who are highly trained sometimes can't, still can't get past the mind ball problem. They can't stop yeah. trying. And this is what happens in choking. So one of the things I look at is mm. the big literature on choking and sports, oh, right. which is a huge problem. I mean, especially at really elite levels, like at elite tennis. Okay, let's talk about Tiger Woods. Okay, yeah, or Tiger Woods, or golf, right? right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. he, that 
to me seems such a classic example yeah. of a guy who was in a state of flow or yeah, wu yeah. or whatever it was. He was phenomenal yeah. when he was getting laid a lot. Oh, you think that's what it was? Okay. The, yeah, well, look possible. at look at his it's career. That's, that's when a good it fell way apart. To downregulate your prefrontal cortex. Right. So yeah, that's I probably think, true. Yeah. Right. He had yeah. like his promiscuity uh-huh. could be interpreted as part of his psychological balance. Yeah. And you know, whatever his issues are that he needed to right. fuck a lot of different yeah. women, yeah. whatever that is. I'm not being judgmental. I'm just saying like that's when he was in his, his center. Zone. Yep. Yep. And as soon as that fell apart, and he got humiliated, and the divorce, and yep. the kids, and the da da da, and then he never, he could yep. never get it back. Yeah, now, there are good examples of athletes where this happens to them. They hmm. choke, and then they never get back in the zone again. They right. their careers are over. Or you mentioned tennis. That that amazing story, Andre Agassi, uh-huh. where his hair was falling out, and he was wearing a wig. Really? No, yeah. I didn't know this story. Okay. In the French Open, he okay. he had like glued. Hair, because he because he was balding and he was really uptight about it and he'd like put this wig. It was when he really? had that crazy hair. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, he wrote about this in in his autobiography. Okay. I forget what it was called. And he, there was a sixty minutes segment where he talked about it. And he's out there in the final, the French Open, and it's really hot and he's sweating yeah. and his hair starts coming off. The glue's <laughs> running down his face. And he's trying to win this. I think he ended up winning, but oh, yeah. you know, and only his brother knew and he kept yeah. looking up at his brother and his, <laughs> his brother's, brother's like, wipe your face, wipe, wipe your face. glue off your face. That's hilarious. Yeah. That's, you know, it, at that level of tennis, these guys are all super good. Yeah. You know, they've been training their entire lives since right. they were kids. They've completely transformed their hot cognition. They don't have to think about how to hit a forehand anymore. Um, and with them, their main problem is mental, right? It's right. just when they start thinking about how they hit their forehand. So supposedly, Jack yeah. uh, or uh, John McEnroe used to, he's, you know, he was a bastard. So yeah, he, if he sure. was playing against somebody and they were doing really well, as they changed sides, he'd say, hey, your forehand's looking really good today. And they'd start thinking, huh, what am I doing different with my forehand? And then he'd fuck up the forehand. Um, If that didn't work, he'd have a tantrum. He'd have a tantrum. But that's the, you know, the problem for professional athletes is falling out of the zone, either because you're worrying about the score or you're worrying about, you know, the money you're going to make or whatever. Mm, Yeah. Um, And that's, and if there was a simple solution to it, it would be found because the difference, you know, this is worth millions and millions of dollars right so clearly there's no simple solution to it yeah or it's or it's individual as you say because it's life stage it's your hormonal state if you're a woman yeah yeah probably also just you know if you're uh, a conservative versus a liberal in terms Mm. of temperament right some strategies are going to appeal to you more or less so introvert versus extrovert you're going to like different strategies right um, but I think having, you know, essentially this grab bag of strategies at your disposal is helpful. Yeah. And so I, basically I walk readers through each of the strategies and then talk about some of the contemporary cognitive scientific and social scientific evidence that, um, you know, there's something to each of these strategies. They all work in certain right. contexts. Um, Was that a difficult book to write? It wasn't. It was actually really fun. Really? Okay. Yeah. So you were in a state of I was in Uwe Uwe when, when you I wrote, wrote this book. I was in Rome on sabbatical, which oh. is a great place to write a trade, your first trade book. Right. Um, yeah, it really did flow. And then there was, of course, the hard work of editing because I had a really tough editor. She made me throw out like half of what I wrote. Uh-huh. But um, yeah, no, it was actually, I didn't know how it was going to be, but it was a really fun experience. Mm. So I'm definitely going to, I'll do it again. Yeah, also good. just the experience of reaching, you know, wildly magnitudes of people higher than I normally do with like yeah. a monograph. So, yeah. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a, Did you get a lot of good feedback? Do you get people saying that it helped them with their oh, lives? Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 Unbelievable. It's, uh, you know, I get emails all the time from people who've read it. I've got a letter from some guy in prison in North Carolina mm. who's, you know, he does meditation and he's kind of, someone gave him the book and it really uh, resonated with the type of meditation practices he does. Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, uh, old retired people who are reflecting on their careers. It was really, the book tour was interesting because I spoke to groups of people I wouldn't normally speak to, you know, older people. I'm normally always speaking to 19, 20 year old yeah. kids. Um, and that was really interesting because a lot of people, like uh, people who are in theater, we're like, this is totally our lives. You know, oh, the paradox of Uwe is what we live with point. all the time. Right. Improv, I hear from improv right. all the time. Yeah. Um, it's just, that's, certain sub-communities in our culture are super aware of this problem. Uh, actors, um, comics, you know, comedians, the thing they fear the most is that feeling of thinking too much. And, you know, was that a funny joke or not? Or right. As soon as you start thinking that, you're dead. You're dead, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I hear a lot from people who experience this in their professional lives, and they were like, oh, I never had a word for it before. Right. <laughs> um, and that's yeah. the thing. I think we don't have a good word for it. So we have flow, but it's not um, appropriate. And it doesn't have the same kind of range of way. And so I find that everyone who knows me now uses this, these terms all the time, yeah. which to me suggests that they fill a conceptual gap for us. Right, and I'm sure you're aware of all the research showing that when there's a term for something, it's easier to yeah. recognize it. And, exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, people always experience schadenfreude, right? right. But the Germans we, we had do. To borrow, we had to borrow the German <laughs> word before we could really, you know, focus yeah. on it. So yeah. I think Uwe is like that. It, so I think, you know, in a, I have these strategies I walk people through, but I think the broader implication of the book is that we live in this society that's really focused on striving mm. and effort, and challenge, complexity, yeah. and, um, and I think that that's often, if if it were the case that that was always the way to achieve our goals, that would be you know unavoidable. But it's clearly not. There are all right. these goals like charisma or happiness or creativity right. that just can't be directly pursued. Right. And if you try that striving strategy, you're just gonna mess yourself up. And so yeah. there's, there's, it's very helpful to think about the importance of spontaneity and why mm. actually in certain situations you need to back off and not not lean in, you need to lean out and just like yeah. you know, relax in a lot of situations. Yeah, I, you, as you were saying that, I, I thought of, I remembered when I was a kid, I read about um, some story about American Indians hunting and an older Indian was teaching the younger guy, and and he explained that you couldn't, you never look directly at the animal. Uh huh. You always yeah. look just to the side. Right, right. Because you look directly at it, you'll scare it away. Yeah. It'll sense your presence, and that's what happiness is like, or huh. fun. Yeah, you know? <laughs> so many things. Like yeah, so many things. Just keep it peripheral and don't go, don't aim straight at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, okay, how does this apply? We talked a little bit about dating yeah. uh, and how trying too hard or focusing too much uh, on objective can, can sabotage the whole process. But what about in a relationship, an established relationship? Because I often hear people say marriage is a lot of work. Okay. I've been married 17 years. And I often think, well, really, if it's that much work, yeah, maybe yeah. it's not a good marriage. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I'm suspicious of work in general. <laughs> I am too, actually. <laughs> yeah, and, and interpersonal relationships. I mean, clearly, 
It's also I mean, if you have a kid, you, it's a different thing. Yeah, so because we, you can't yeah, just bail. You, yeah, yeah. So with kids, it's a different thing. Yeah. Kids require a lot of just work, just straight right. up, like waking up and changing diapers right. and cleaning right. throw up off your clothes. And, um, <laughs> you can't avoid that. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think interpersonal. So I think one of the things we lose sight of is that interpersonal relationships should be easy in the sense that if they're sincere and spontaneous yeah. and authentic. They shouldn't be work in a in a striving sense. They may be work in the sense that you have to focus, like you actually have to pay attention to your partner. Right. Instead of like, there's so many ways to just fall into like watching TV every night and just distracting yourself. There probably is, you know, a sense in which you need to make an effort to focus. Um, but if it's too much work, I think it is a problem. And but also focus. I guess it depends how we're defining work, but focus on someone you love mm -hmm. who brings great pleasure and happiness into your life shouldn't be a shouldn't, difficult shouldn't thing. Shouldn't be work, no, but it does require attention, you know, yeah. and not falling into the seductions that we're surrounded by, like, yeah. you know, TV or surfing the internet after. Right. So especially when you have kids, right? I, you know, there is this certain point in the day where you've been at work all day and then dealing with pickup and you know the dog mm -hmm. and the right. this and that and then you often just want to drink a glass of wine and surf the internet you know that's the easiest cognitively yeah. easiest thing to do so yeah. there probably is a sense in which you need to resist that the dulling mm. path yeah. and actually pay attention close your computer and talk right. to your partner about how their day was or whatever yeah um yeah. but yeah if you should it, if that if that done properly is not doesn't feel like work right right? It, right it should be once you start doing it it should happen spontaneously it's like going for a walk you yeah. might not feel like it but once you, you do yeah, it it's, it's, it's gratifying yeah. yeah no i think that's yeah. the way to think about it it's often um like working out's that way for me. I never, sure. I never want to work out. But it's but good I to always, have done it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Once I start doing it, I'm always like, oh, you know, this is great. Yeah. But I never want to do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I'm the same. Yeah, it's a strange thing. I have to structure my life in a way that exercise is an integrated part of yep. I do too. my day. Yeah, I do too. I, I, to I just can't find an hour to go to no, the gym. Because you'll always, that's the thing you put off. It's and, so boring. Yeah. 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 It's but, so boring. That's why it's so. Ten I've gotten into tennis actually again because exactly it's playing fun, basketball or meeting a buddy and playing tennis. Yeah, it's fun. You're yeah. hanging out. You've got a thing. Someone's waiting for you. You can't blow it off. You know. Yeah. It's, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And it's just you get exercise, but you know, ideally, if you, especially if you have a good partner, so someone yeah. who's like at your level and right. they play well. Um, you get into the zone, you know, you really right. get absorbed and then an hour and a half later you got this awesome workout. But it well, and it's like we way. were saying, you're not, the objective isn't exercise, the yeah. objective is meeting your buddy and hanging yeah. out for an hour and yeah. a half. So, yeah. and you get exercise yeah. along the way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So where where is free will in all this? Mm -hmm. Is there, in ancient Chinese thought, is there an awareness of free will or? Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think free will is a basic human cognitive universal. Um, the idea that you know something's what's special about people is we have this ability to make choices. Mm -hmm. um, I think free will is in like you know what we were talking about with the deciding to go on the walk, right? right. So there is this these moments where you gotta just get out get out of your chair and go out, put your shoes on, and go out and go for a walk. There is that moment when you have to choose to close your laptop and turn to your partner and ask them how their day was instead right. of you know reading another story about Trump. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, there's, you yeah. can spend out you know, surfing Facebook or whatever. Right. Um, so there's that, you have to make these decisions that require some kind of effort or focus, 
and so they're they're kind of like inflection points where you make that decision, but then ideally that pushes you into a new state of wu wei. Uh -huh. um, and so I think we kind of move, we cycle in and out of wu wei in our normal lives, and and the key thing is making decisions and conscious effort to to choose paths where you get into wu wei again, and where you're not just stuck doing something either completely mindless or doing something that's effortful and kind of futile. When, mm. when it's aimed at a goal, that is something you really can only get in a, in a way fashion. Right, right. So free will is there. I mean, we may, we have a cognitive control region. You know, we have executive function for a reason, and it's a great thing. Um, but I think that you got to put it in its place. Its, its job is really to move us into these states, I think, um, and ideally, that's how we spend our days, you know, moving from one way state to another. Right, right. Um, so it's sort of, it's like shifting gears. You're yeah. not doing it all the time. You do it when you need to do it because yeah. of external changes, and then you just sort of glide along. Yeah, or writing. I mean, I don't know yeah. your writing process, but often, like, I don't feel like writing, you know. But if I force myself to sit down... And especially if I, for me, it's helpful to ritualize it. So I've got mm -hmm. like my place, I, I start at the same time. When I'm writing a book, I'll mm -hmm. start at the same time every day. I have my coffee, I've got my yeah. computer. Um, and I never, like working out, I never want to do it. <laughs> but then as soon as you open up your chapter you're working on, then you get it, ideally you get into the flow. And right. then, you know, next thing you know, it's lunchtime and yeah. you just wrote for three hours. Yeah. Um, so, but it requires that the free will is in the making yourself sit down and start doing it. Yeah, yeah. This is great. Oh, Thank you. So. Yeah, I feel like I've a, taken up yeah, too no, much of your yeah, time yeah, as it probably, is. I need to take this dog out too. Take the dog out. Um, the book is called uh, Trying Not to Try. Trying Not to Try. And who's the publisher? It's Crown Random House. Oh, good, yeah. good. So, and it's right. out in paperback now. Good. So, yeah. All right, well, I hope a bunch of people buy it. If people want. Oh, good. All right. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks. That's fun. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through Amazon.com or you know someone who does, please direct them through the link on my page chrisryanphd.com you click on that baby once bookmark the landing page on amazon and then eight to ten percent of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones thank you to basin and range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast very funky little tune there uh, called the bright side of the sun i believe you can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com if you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners a good place to do that is on reddit just search tangentially speaking all one word there's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes i drop in occasionally and say hello answer questions whatever uh thanks to shore design t-shirts our garage is full of them my mom has them all organized as only she can julie thank you to julie my mom she'll send those t-shirts out to you if you order them everything we've got in stock is from shore design t-shirts in Thailand, and you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. 
You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at carseyblanton.com, C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm, and it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can, because, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation to the ground. 